and welcome to episode 88 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today's episode is part one of our two-part season five finale. Episode 88 is also another entry in the Big Rhetorical Podcast Keystone Perspectives series. Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast, episodes are designed to highlight the life and career work of distinguished scholars and professionals working in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. Scholars featured as a part of the Keystone Perspectives series are people who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. These biannual episodes act as a digital archive with the potential to impact our fields now and in the future. Keystone Perspectives episodes also serve to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. Today, I talked to Dr. Asal B. In a way, in order to do, if you can apologize for that, then you that means you recognize the problem. And if you can recognize the problem and apologize, those are the first steps. Those are the first steps. That was that's not even getting to the changes. That's just saying, oh, we have this problem. We did these things that they were wrong. They're bad. They're racist. <laughs> let's not do those and let's make amends. Let's mourn a little bit. Let's we're not perfect. Nobody is, right? That would be a really good first step. About his new book, Above the Well, an anti-racist literacy argument from a boy of color. Dr. Inouye is professor of rhetoric and composition in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. His research focuses on anti-racist and social justice theory and practices in writing assessments. Among his award-winning books are Race and Writing Assessment, an edited collection, and Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, Teaching and Assessing for a Socially Just Future. He was the 2019 Chair of the Conference on College Composition and Communication, and has been a past member of the Four C's Executive Committee and the Executive Board of the Council of Writing Program Administrators. All royalties from Above the Well, an anti-racist literacy argument from a boy of color, are donated to the Asal and Kelly Inouye Anti-Racist Teaching Endowment at their alma mater, Oregon State University. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Asal B. Inouye. I am in that writing class. We're reading from Strunk and White's The Elements of Style. This appears to be her teaching method. Someone reads out loud. We all follow along. We then do some writing. That's it. It isn't something I find engaging. I'm sitting alone at my table, one with two chairs. It's meant for two people. One chair is empty. 
page seven of Strunk and White, item six. Do not break sentences in two. Perfect, I think, to myself. I have this problem. This is what I need. It has something to do with what my teachers keep telling me. All those red marks on my papers. What's it called? That thing on my papers? Comma splices, maybe? No, that's my problem too, but it ain't that. I start to feel myself moving back into the language of stats, even if much of it's gone, meshed into my white English. This meshed English is a sure way I think can think through things, get stuff straight in my head and feel like I'm in control. Fragments, that's it. You break something in two and you got two fragments of it. The text says, do not use periods for commas. Okay, so when can I use commas? Now, I'm not sure if I'm using periods right either. I'm feeling more confused how this explanation help anyone. This tells me the rule, but no, not in a way I understand. I tell myself to think like a white kid. Things start to get shakier for me. When the hell I use commas and periods, I can feel that anxiety rise in me. The school shit feels so arcane. I think, yeah, arcane, that's the word, like in D&D. This is motherfucking black magic, hexes. The editors offer two examples. Perfect. Examples should help. The first example. I met them on a cunnered liner many years ago, coming home from Liverpool to New York. What the fuck? Jeez, cunnered. What the hell is that? Wait, I can figure this out. Liverpool. That's where the Beatles came from. So that's England. And New York is America. So cunnered must go with liner. What the fuck is a liner? Like a pencil line? That's stupid. Stop being stupid. I tell myself, think white. Think right. It's got to be a plane or a boat or something like that. Something people are on. Why would something like that be called a liner? More frustration, mostly from the translating my mind's language into white language. It's like putting on and taking off clothes you didn't fully know how to wear yet. On and off, on, off. How these sentences wrong exactly? Wait, maybe this is an example of how to put the period incorrectly. I breathe heavily on my book. Slow down, I tell myself. I try to blink the anxiety away. What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Asao B. Inouye, and uh, my title is Professor of Rhetoric and Composition at Arizona State University. Uh, and I, my primary um, location, since Arizona State University has four campuses in the Phoenix Tempe area, I'm primarily on the downtown campus. That's where my unit is in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts. And my role there is professor. I used to be associate dean of that same college, um, but this year um, I have stepped down from that role and I'm now um, uh, just, I'm a full-time faculty professor in that and uh, happily enjoying less stress and less work. <laughs> administrative work, just as much work, but less administrative work. <laughs> I want to start with a question about the proceeds for your new book, Above the Well, because I think it's important. Early on in your book, before the acknowledgement, early on in your book, before the acknowledgements and the foreword, you explain that all of your profits and all of those of the WAC Clearinghouse will be directed to the Asao and Kelly in a way anti-racist teaching endowment at your alma mater, Oregon State University. Why was it important for you to establish this trust and ultimately use funds in this way? 
Well, it was really important for me because that's the work uh, that I saw myself doing, to, uh, not just in my teaching life, not just in my academic life, but in uh, in writing this book. Um, the main goal when I started was not to write another literacy narrative or argument about about literacy or uh, or racism or white supremacy in the world, but to build something <laughs> that helps teachers um, and helps students. And the best way I knew how to do that was to try to create something that was sustainable and that would last long, be, long past when I'm, you know, when I'm done doing what I'm doing or when I've died and so forth. So uh, it happened that this last year we had created that endowment, um, my wife and I at our alma mater. Uh, and the good folks at Oregon State University were wonderful in helping us uh, figure out how to do that because I've never done anything like that before. And acquired an, it requires, of course, an investment on our part, on my wife and my part. Um, and then also I wanted to continue to build it um, in sustainable and strong ways. And so this seemed like the best way to do that. I've never taken um, uh, any uh, royalties or anything like that from any of my other books. And I did, wasn't planning on uh, uh, doing that for this one. But I knew that it, that it might be a way to build some revenue that would go directly into it. And the wonderful folks at Wack Clearinghouse um, Mike Palmquist, um, most notably, uh, were more than happy to donate their um, uh, royalties because they get a, a slice of it. Um, Utah State University Press could not do that because they're pr printing the book, the printed version, and they have overhead that they must. And I totally get that. So um, so a, a significant portion, a much higher proportion than, it, than would be just my royalties go right into that. I don't make any money. Whack Clearinghouse doesn't make any money. All of it goes into that for anti-racist work for teachers. And eventually that work right now has been focusing on the conference and on building enough for scholarships and so forth um, for literacy in secondary and post-secondary literacy classrooms. But the, the idea is that eventually it will go, it will be uh, interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary across, you know, uh, any teacher in any discipline um, who would like to try to become uh, more anti-racist in their pedagogies and their practices and their classrooms. So that's the goal. The full title of the book is Above the Well, an anti-racist literacy argument from a boy of color which was published this year through the WAC Clearinghouse, as you mentioned. This book continues your work for just, equitable, anti-racism in your scholarship. How did this specific project come to be? Where was it born? What is its genesis? Um, you know, I had been in the back of my head for the last, uh, like, maybe five years after after um, the first book, um, uh, Anti-Racist uh, Writing Assessment Ecologies, I had thought about doing something like this that was probably like a literacy narrative, um, but I didn't really feel compelled to do it because I didn't think that it wasn't important for me to contribute another literacy narrative. <laughs> if the, in the, um, it's, uh, I had some conversations with colleagues. Every you know, every time you sit down at Four C's at, a, at for lunch or dinner with some colleagues, and you know, so we start every, people start talking, and next thing you know, we're sharing uh, stories about our schooling and things like that. And I and of course, I would do that as well. And, and every time, I would, someone would say, "Well, why don't you? You should write that. That you should write that." Um, and uh, and I I thought, well, that feels it doesn't feel right to do that. Mm. Um, in part because I felt like it was, uh, in some ways, um, like uh, uh, it was voyeurism, 
you know, <laughs> for, yeah. on the part of like, I would be contributing to or, or uh, capitalizing on some kind of uh, white middle-class voyeurism that didn't feel right to me. So I didn't want to do that. But um, over the, after that book came out, I kept thinking about, well, how do I get some, how do I have these conversations that I'm having with teachers about anti-racist writing assessment ecologies? How do I have them with my students in my first year writing classrooms? Uh, and so I really wrote this book for those students, for, for 18, 19, 20 year olds, for 16, 17 year olds in high school uh, classrooms who want to, who are going to talk about language anyways, because mm -hmm. that's the subject, and who are going to think about judgment of language. And I wanted to be able to do that together with, with race, with racism, with white supremacy in the world um, in ways that was inviting as well as, all, but also brave uh, and uh, and so I wanted this was this book was really written from beginning to end. I thought primarily about what is the book I would sit down and read with my students in my first year writing classrooms. What are the sets of conversations I want to have, and what do I think they would be able to have? Um, so that's what I wrote was for that for that audience. In the foreword, Victor Villanueva describes Above the Well as autobiography, theory, teaching philosophy, theology, all beautifully interwoven. And always there is power. Why did you choose Victor Villanueva to write the foreword to this book? And if you didn't choose him, how did he come to write the foreword? Um, well, I did choose him. Um, he's my mentor. Um, he was the chair of my uh, dissertation committee. Uh, and he's been uh, an incredibly wonderful and father-like mentor um, my entire uh, career. The minute, I remember the first time I, I spoke with him on the phone before I decided to go to WSU for my, my PhD, I was deciding between two schools. WSU was one of them. The University of Arizona was the other. Um, and um, Arizona had, had was offering more money and more stuff and things like that. At the time, they had really a difficult time with um, acquiring students of color. And I think that was part of the reason why they were kept offering me more money. Um, and But they they didn't have anyone like Victor there. Um, and so I'm, I called him and said, would you, you know, we talked and I said, would you work with me? He said, I'll absolutely work with you. Turns out um, he didn't have a choice. <laughs> he didn't have a choice because he, um, uh, and I don't mean that uh, flippantly, I mean that my year, I was so fortunate and unfortunate at the same time. This is how the funny ironies of life work. I was the only PhD um, student who, uh, who went in that year. So I was a cohort of one. Everyone, all the other PhD graduate students were literature folks. Wow. So, um, so I did have colleagues who came in at the same time I did, but I was the only right comp person, um, which also meant that I would get to have Victor all to myself as I moved through and into the, um, into the, you know, uh, going to on the job market and things like that. So it was actually a really, really great experience that way. It also turned out by irony, the year, the year or, or so at he, when I came in, he was the chair of the English department. Then he, uh, stepped down as chair and he, uh, moved into the office right across the hall from mine. <laughs> so, so, so I, I had just, just gobs of uh, contact with him yeah. and it was really, really great. And so he was really important and he was also um, an important reader for, for the book in, in the early drafts. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, was very encouraging uh, that, that uh, you know, in, in those early ways. And I couldn't imagine having anyone else 
right this right there forward, especially since he's kind of in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he makes he makes a significant appearance in it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You describe your reasons for, for you describe your reasons for certain stylistic decisions and above the well. You write, quote, part of my reasoning for how I have written this book is to help readers escape from a false sense of knowing about good language and its appropriate standards, end quote. Why was this important to you? Why was it important to write this book in this way? It was important because I wanted it to be at least in part a demonstration of the paradoxes that we that we face in writing classrooms. That is that we we can't deny that there are a set of standards of language of English language that work in journalism and work in in different fields in different classrooms that they, that have been identified in various ways. We may not always agree, and we don't always agree on the details of those standards. But let's just say, generally speaking, we agree. Most folks agree. Oh, there's a standard English. But that's also a deception, right? That that even though that operates, it doesn't mean it operates uniformly. It doesn't even mean that it operates well. It just operates. So I didn't want to. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to try to address that and illustrate the ways in which that falls apart, even if it's only in small ways. Like I know that um, I, um, as my good friend and colleague. Um, uh, Vershana Shanti Young would say, you know, we all are code meshing all the time. And so I knew that I'd be going into this project code meshing quite a bit. Um, and I wanted to do that. And I wanted to try to, to lean in a little bit more into it uh, than perhaps in other um, uh, in previous books. So, yeah, so that was my, 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 my primary goal there or my primary reason was that it, it, it needed to be an, uh, um, an illustration of what I'm talking about. But also, it was a truer representation of who I am as a language link, as, you know, especially one if we're going to think about myself as a younger, you know, I've lost some of that, some of that initial language um, uh, and the middling and then now. So I want to, you know, I wanted to try to represent that as best as, as best I could. And the only way to do that was to code mesh a bit and to, you know, mess around with the language. What is white language supremacy why is it difficult for so many people to talk about racism and language and languaging well those are uh two i mean related but very separate questions very different questions i'll, I'll try to answer the first one uh white language supremacy is when, when we think about it in, in classrooms um or or even in in a in a business setting white language supremacy really revolves around how judgments of language are circulated and what happens to those judgments it's not um that there is there is some sort of white middle class or elite standard of english that then that is somehow white supremacy it's not it um it happens that that gets activated and has been historically activated in schools, in, in other disciplines, in, in other civic spaces to create white language supremacy. There's this the supremacy of that very particular brand or brands, plural, of English because of the groups who, um, who use that language, that they then deploy that in ways that do all, a number of other racialized projects. And they, all, they always have, historically, have turned out to be white supremacist, um, that is, upholding, um, uh, benefiting uh, white racial groups, uh, usually elite white racial groups, that not always evenly, 
So, and I think that's the important thing that many students, um, oftentimes when we talk about this in classrooms, we have to confront like, that we, I have a, I was, I've had the benefit of teaching in primarily universities that were mostly students of color, mostly working class, mostly first generation students. So I've been really lucky. Those are the, those are the students that I want to teach. Because of that, I have a lot of white students in my classrooms over the years who said, well, wait, I'm, I come from a poor background or a poor rural background. I don't have, I didn't, I don't feel like I got any privilege because of the way I speak. In fact, I don't speak the way, in fact, I got dinged at it in school. And absolutely. So there are versions of English <laughs> um, that white racial groups um, don't all share it, just like black racial groups and, and Asian racial groups and, and Latin groups don't all share it. So I think. It, it, there's an intersectional aspect to, to this. There's also um, a way in which just because that this can be true, we can find white groups of, uh, of students or, or people or language users who don't always benefit exactly the same way that I'm talking about in these elite groups. Uh, doesn't mean that white language supremacy doesn't exist. It just means that there's uneven consequences. Uh, and so that's what we have to contend with. And I think that's the, that's a lesson that we can take, that we can, uh, take an ounce of Gramsci from. I mean, Gramsci says, look, the best way to, 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 uh, to beat all of, the, all, all of the, the folks around you is to divide and conquer. You, you pit everybody, you pit all of the underclasses against each other, and then you have smaller fights to fight. Um, and they're never, they never come to know we are all oppressed in the same kind of ways, or we all have, we all share in some oppression, or share, we can, we can, we're stronger together. The second question, well, why is it difficult for so many people to talk about racism and language? I think the simple answer to that is we don't have historically the language, the vocabulary to do it. And therefore, we don't have, most of us don't have the, the guts, if you will, I guess. <laughs> we don't have enough, the, enough constitution to sit with discomfort and say, wow, I feel really uncomfortable about, about this. I feel very guilty. I feel like I'm being blamed. And you sit with that and say, well, that's Good that you can recognize those feelings. Now recognize your ideas about those about what we're talking about in language, let's say, or the judgment of it, and set them next to each other. So I think that we just don't have an, uh, enough. What we get are binary or uh, us versus them kind of you know uh, framings for right. conversations around race or racism or language or white supremacy. It's always well, I'm not white supremacist. Well, no one's talking about you. You know that's. Just, uh, we're talking about the structures and the and the policies and the procedures that are put in place in schools and classrooms and other places that create these conditions that make that so. You don't have to you don't have to be the general <laughs> of the army to be on the side that gets all the benefits. You know, in fact, you may not even be thinking you're fighting in that war. Um, you may just be on the sidelines supporting troops, buying war bonds. You know, um, and uh, by supporting, you know, oh well, no, we got to have a standard. So I think we just don't have the vocabulary um, or, and we don't have the comfort with the vocabulary. We have the vocabulary to talk about race and to talk about language, white language supremacy. We just haven't done it um, enough yet. So how do we continue to build this vocabulary? How do we? We have to get the right people. Yeah. Yeah. I, you're, you're great. Great question. We have to, um, we, we have to uh, build it by doing it. I mean, I think we have to get the right people in the room and, we have to um, sit in that. We have to we have to start doing it um, and doing it together. I mean, our, our you know white supremacy and racism in, in the world, it, no matter what avenue we talk about, is not going to be solved by one group of people. 
if it's going to be solved, it's going to be solved by all of us. <laughs> we are all part of the solution. <laughs> so I think that if we if we truly understand that, then, then it's not about pointing fingers. It's not about blaming people. It's about understanding the conditions that we live in and how do we change those conditions. So that's the, and part of it, part of that is simply all agreeing, we are going to all be part of the solution. We might not agree with what that means. And that's the process of history, right? That's the process of making our mistakes, moving forward, but always knowing my, my goals are for us to have X or Y, whatever that outcome is, right? That's so, and, but it, that's not easy, especially in, in, uh, in conditions that set up pedagogies and, and assessment practices that I'm talking about, that I advocate for, that sound to many people, rightfully so, like somehow I'm setting students up for failure. Like somehow they're not going to be prepared for that white supremacist tomorrow. Um, that is that they're not going to be good white supremacists because they don't have the standard. Um, and I want to say that is the only way I know how to change the world. <laughs> By building an army that doesn't go along with that. <laughs> and it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. A coalition, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And above the well, you describe race and language as systems intertwined, which make up so many which make up so many of what we know and our ways of knowing our existences. You write, quote, it is the systems in place like schools, civic life, economic markets, governments, churches, even our systems of language and standards for language that make the conditions of our lives. These systems create and structure what is possible for us and how our own words will be valued or heard or understood by others, end quote. A loaded big question. How do we continue to deconstruct these systems? What things can listeners of this podcast do to move to praxis in their work, to make our systems, our society more anti-racist, more equitable, more just? Yeah, um, that is a big question. Um, partly it's a big question because what we're talking about are those systems, the structures that make right. systems. And so I think, and that is very hard work for an individual to do. You have to do it with, as you said before, with coalitions and with um, probably most of the time with some compromises. Mm. You just have to know where you are not willing to compromise. That is where when you compromise it, you end up compromising your goals, your anti-racist goals. So I think um, one way to start is that we all have to cultivate anti-racist orientations towards systems, towards our teaching, towards the things that we do um, that seem so natural, um, but they're really just naturalized. They're really just things that we've acquired, um, whether they're personal, we think of them as personal, or they're disciplinary, or whether they're institutional, and start to form new policies, procedures, and structures in our lives. And that may mean the kind of, some of us aren't really equipped to do that. That is, some of us aren't our, our strengths and our our our, uh, our attributes don't, don't incline us to to be the policymakers, the new pol or the or um, the rule makers, if you will. Um, but they may be that we can do other stuff in that work. Um, and so I think that I don't I don't want to suggest that all of us have to be the same kind of um, uh, uh, the same kind of fighter, if you will, or soldier in the war. Um, that we all have a role that we can play, um, and, but we got to find out what that role is, but also understand the bigger picture. That it's not about 
Um, that it's not like this sort of Fordist sort of notion of building uh, uh, cars where everyone just does their one little thing and then they leave the other stuff to somebody else that knows that. And then when you break everybody apart, nobody knows how to build the car. <laughs> we have to be, instead, everyone has to have a sense of how to make, build this car. But we know that I'm best at doing this one thing over here, or or my efforts are better placed here at this moment, and so forth. So I think we have to know our know know what we can do, know the big picture, and continue to work on ourselves, while also continuing to work on the systems that make us. So that's the policies, the structures, the inst educational institutions, the classrooms. I have uh, started, you know, when I work with teachers, I'm mostly helping them think about the structures that make their classrooms that make their assessments, their assessment ecologies. That's why it's an ecology. It's not just this practice and that rubric or that assignment. It's the ecology. Um, so that I think that's the that's the best answer. Is, and it's it, it really isn't, I don't think it's like satisfying for, for perhaps the folks who really need it, like someone who really doesn't know what, they're, what they want to do or how to do it. And they're brand new to this, but they got a big heart and they want to do it. And that's because they got a lot of work ahead of them. <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of of of, of uh, research and self, you know, uh, 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 inventorying and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So th it's interesting that you that you mentioned like someone who might be new to this work, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I I was thinking and developed a quick follow up question for someone who's new to this work. What do you mean when you say compromise, right? And and give us an example of what that looks like. Yeah, um, uh, I, compromise. Well, I think, especially when we're talking about changing uh, institutional structures or departmental structures, um, like let's say, for instance, outcomes for a writing program. Um, and that might be, um, that might actually be pretty detrimental to the students um, who are being taught in that program. Um, and there might be better, more generous, more compassionate, larger ways of thinking about languaging. In those, in those writing classrooms. But they don't re get reflected in the outcomes because the outcomes are, are wedded to older styles of standard, standardization. And they have this deep sense of we, we are preparing students for tomorrow, before the next major, for the next class. And so they have feel these pressures for very good reasons. So that's a paradox because we wanna prepare our students, but we probably need to investigate what the nature of preparation means and what the nature of um, of what we're doing in that classroom really is all about. Like what we, what we, what are the bigger problems that we that we create when we do that thing? So I think, I think th those things aren't easy to 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 solve. Um, and I don't know. I mean, gosh, I mean, every institution is a different is a different set of situations and different people, players in it. Um, you know, if you're new to the if you're new to the game, uh, or you feel very new or feel unsure, um, I think you try to find folks who are less new <laughs> and follow their lead. One of the things I know that is very difficult, especially in academia um, with teachers and academics and so forth, because of the nature of who, who I think tends to be involved in, who wants to be a teacher and, mm -hmm. and, and they want to help, they want to, and they're, and they're good at these things like, like talking and like coming up with good ideas and writing and, and coming and, and thinking about theories and thinking about, you know, uh, these kinds of things, studies and stuff is that you, at some point for most folks, um, for many folks, you have to step aside. Um, if you're, especially if you fit into particular categories who have never step, stepped aside, white, middle class, et cetera, you need to step aside and, and let somebody else lead. 
Um, and usually, and again, it will depend on your institutional situation and who's there and what's the history of that institution in that, that geographic place. But what I found is that too many of my white colleagues who fit this, this uh, category are just, they can't, they're so in, invested in their paternalistic sense of, I can be the savior. I think I know it's right. And I want this anti-racist work to happen. And that is all wonderful. It really is. I mean, it's great to see that they're so gung-ho about like, I'm going to be the be part of the solution. And I want them to be. At the same time, um, it doesn't honor the very real um, experience and struggles that their, their colleagues of color who have had um, just by living through those systems um, and having a very different relationship to them, that they might have some answers and that they probably need to be leading. Um, uh, it's historically time for, for some of that. I don't mean that we need to replace all leadership positions with people of color. I'm just meaning that there's not enough of it anyways. So we need to figure out um, how in each, in each institutional um, uh, case, what we can do to, to, to write the historical scales, to balance them out a little bit more. So, so I know it's, it's not easy, but part of it is stepping aside for a little bit and, and, and taking a, a you know, a back seat for a while. Overcoming really that white savior complex, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's like, you know, centuries of it. I mean, there's centuries yeah. of like, of, of it, of it being saturated in the culture, in this, in, in our thinking, in our books, in our narratives that we tell each other, that we tell ourselves. And so because of that, wow, it, that's, I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that the folks who fall into this category or participate in this are bad people. I'm saying they're susceptible, like all of us, to the historical narratives and things that, that ingratiate us, that make us who we are. And that's, it's it's hard. I I know I've participated in, in in that in my life too as well. And I try very hard every day in my classroom and outside and other places to like understand that and separate it and see it for what it is in my life. Um, so so yeah yeah it's there. It's hard to separate. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Welcome back. Let's pivot back to the book. This work, Above the Well, indeed so much of your work exists at the intersection of race and language and works to acknowledge and deconstruct racism within these systems. What is the explicit purpose or purposes of this book above the well? The explicit purpose is to have conversations with um, younger um, students and scholars. That is 
freshmen, first year students, um, uh, high school students about white language supremacy and the implications of race in our languaging and in our judgment of languaging. That is the, um, it is, this isn't, I didn't write the, the book to try to um, extend scholarship um, as much as I tried to write it to explain uh, the things we know about these things already from scholarship and studies to um, that audience. So that, that audience, so that, that younger folks can have those conversations in a meaningful way. That is, so remember we talked about what makes it so hard to talk about race and racism and white yeah. Well, what makes it hard is that book is with the lack of that vocabulary. This I felt like is a way to start building that vocabulary for at a, at a younger age. And don't wait till they get a go get a master's degree. Get it. <laughs> Let's do it on that first class in that first year, that first year of writing classroom. That's what I wanted um, uh, to happen because those, again, those were the conversations I wanted to have with my students or find a convenient text instead of cobbling together a bunch of other texts that would allow us to have this conversation, which, which I have done and did in the past, but this felt like a better way. Now, now I have a different problem in my own writing classrooms, which is that um, I wrote the book that I want to, I want to use in that, in that first year writing class. But if I'm teaching a first year writing class, I feel really guilty using my book. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> so I, yeah. So I don't want to use it. <laughs> You want other people to use it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if they feel inclined, if they feel that's the, the right move for them. In April 2021, you wrote a blog post detailing why you decided to sever ties with the Council of Writing Program Administrators, the CWPA. In your post, you said that you had to, based on a history of white supremacy within the organization. <laughs> Final straw being the CWPA executive board's unwillingness to listen to a task force you were leading to make their outcomes statement to be more anti-racist. You called on others to boycott the organization. Six months on now, are you pleased, happy, satisfied with CWPA's response to your blog post and boycott? And what is your current relationship with the CWPA? Yeah, the, the well, the, the easy answer for that is my current relationship is that I'm still not a member, um, uh, and I say six months on, I, it's it's still too early for me to know, uh, like what seeds they they planted. Um, if I were to judge them, which I think is it's unfair, if I were to judge them on their progress to this point, I would say that they have not passed. <laughs> I would say that I'm not I'm not ready to rejoin. Um, and I want to rejoin. I want to be part of that organization. I think it's a good organization. It has been a good organization. There are a ton, an overwhelming ton of really great people in that organization. They do good work. Um, but they're not there yet. And I'm, and I'm done after 15 or more years of trying to make those changes and, and do that work, fr often frustratingly so. I'm not going to waste my energy. I'm too old, man. Life is too short. Um, uh, I'm. I just don't have the time uh, to do that anymore. Someone else will have to do it. I've spent the last 15 years trying to help, uh, and it didn't work out. Or at least, it it led to that. That last, as you said, the last straw, the final straw, and that was the final straw. I mean, I had no intention of. That was not the any. In, that was not in my like frame of thinking. Like I'm gonna. This is gonna end up me like uh, bowing out of the CWPA. Uh, that, that I did not. In, uh, uh, that was not what I was thinking at all. I was thinking we were we were doing the work they asked us to do. 
Um, uh, and then they proceeded to do what they did. And so, so I think I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful, but I always am. I'm an always hopeful person. I'm not a pest. I'm not a naturally pessimistic guy. Um, I think that there are wonderful, good people leading that organization. There are wonderful, good people in that executive board. I just hope they do the deep uh, work that they need to do um, in order to make the changes that they say they want to make. So I'm hopeful, but I think ask me again in another six months, like in a year, you know, I think that would be like more than a year after all that went down. Uh, and then they should have something to show for their for their for their work since they since it was pretty clear that they were trying to make immediate changes to the conference to um, uh, making promises and uh, and uh, plans for internal audits by external um, uh, organizations. So that all of that is those are good signs. But you know you can have lots of talk, talking sessions at a conference, and then all it ends up being is a bunch of talk. Um, talking don't change the structures that created white supremacy culture in, in CWPA. What changes it is changing the policies and procedures and so forth. It also might help if somebody apologized. Just going to say that in order to do, if you can apologize for that, then you that means you recognize the problem. And if you can recognize the problem and apologize, those are the first steps. Those are the first steps. That was a, that's not even getting to the changes. That's just saying, oh, we have this problem. We did these things that they were wrong. They're bad. They're racist. <laughs> let's not do those and let's make amends. Let's mourn a little bit. Let's, we're not perfect. Nobody is, right? Um, that would be a really good first step. So, you know, we'll see. Okay. But I'm not going to hold my breath and I'm not going to wait around. <laughs> I got other stuff to do. <laughs> Perfect segue. What's next for us out in a way? Have you sketched out your next project? Are you spending time with your family? What should we expect next? Well, given, you know, I uh, lots of stuff has changed, you know, in my life in the last year um, uh, from, you know, stepping down from associate dean, finishing the book project, et cetera. And then um, really... Uh, in the last year, I've also been having a lot of, I feel I felt a lot of um, um, uh, uh, contentment is the wrong word, but um, it's um, engagement with my blog, um, and I've and it's I've gotten a lot of really good um, uh, feedback as well as a lot of readers, and it's been really useful in a number of ways for teachers. Um, and so I'm going to continue to do that and try to um, uh, keep it a robust presence for myself in my own writing life. That So that is um, an ongoing project that while I've done it in the past, I've not done it to quite the degree that I have. Like this year, I've been doing the blog book uh, on anti-racist orientations for teachers. Uh, and so um, so that's that's been really useful. We're getting I'm getting really close to the uh, I think I have about a quarter of that that blog book left. Um, I mean, I wrote the whole thing and then I rewrote and revised each segment that was a blog post of, uh, uh, and it started like, I think in like May, yeah. uh, April or May, and I'm still doing it. I took a little bit of a hiatus in some, certain sp- places um, for vacations and things like that. So that I could get, get some rest. Uh, but now um, I'm getting back to, to that work and we'll pr- it'll probably get that blog book will finish um, probably by the first of the year or, the, or in December sometime likely at the pace I'm going. Um, so there's that, but um, that's going to be an ongoing thing. I'll pr- once that's done, I'll do something else with the blog. I mean, there'll be more blog posts about other things. I've really gotten a lot of um, 
uh, traction from uh, the podcast uh, collaborations that I've done with a former student, grad student of mine, who is now on a very accomplished uh, podcast podcaster um, and uh, a professor. Um, he is uh, Shane Wood, who does um, the Pedagogue, um, and he was really gracious and uh, and uh, uh, helpful. And he, I read, I recorded my you know reading blogs, and then he put it on as a podcast and made it a, a, an audio sort of thing, so we could have both of those available. And the idea was to let it to have something for students to read, to listen to and read, um, make it like more accessible for students in classrooms um, because of the nature of the questions that each podcast um, and blog post, you know, uh, discuss, which is around labor-based grading contracts. Um, mm. And so that has been really um, uh, useful. I mean, I'm getting like just on those pages alone, probably um, five to 7,000 viewers and um, a week. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah. So just on those, not even, we're not even talking about the other stuff. So those that, cause I made a resource page for labor-based grading uh, in classrooms for students and teachers, and there's lots of resources there and I update it frequently and, and, and these things are on there. So they're getting a lot of those. And, but those ones, those collaborations with, um, with Shane and pedagogue, um, they got, they clearly gotten the most. Um, I mean, clearly teachers and students are using those as a way to introduce labor-based uh, grading in classrooms and so forth. The next like formal project though, is probably going to be, um, uh, that is going to look more like a book thing. Uh, it's probably going to be uh, the, uh, um, the anti-racist style guide or grammar book. Um, I can't decide which one. I don't know if it can be a grammar book, but it might be very well be a style guide, uh, or it might just be an anti-racist um, uh, teaching grammar in an anti-racist way or some way. So that's where I've been moving. Um, uh, partly because a lot of folks are asking me about this. Well, how do I how do I teach this very thing that I have to do in my classes? Um, and I got a lot of really great responses to that question a couple months back on Twitter when I asked them. I said, I'm thinking about doing this. Uh, one, there's no there's no author. I can't find an author of a grammar book that is uh, that is a scholar of color. There just isn't any. Um, can't find it, and so I I feel like we need to. There needs to be someone. I'm willing to write wow. that book. Um, and so, but but more importantly, I want I didn't want it to be a gr grammar book just authored by a <laughs> by a scholar of color. I wanted it to be anti-racist grammar. So that was that's the impetus. And I got a, a lot of really great ideas from folks. I'm trying to find a way to um to put put them all together and make them into something that's usable for, um, for both first year writing classrooms and teachers and students and um, uh, perhaps secondary, uh, 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 you know, teachers and students as well. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to sit for an interview. It was really a treat to chat with you. Yeah, it was, it was great chatting with you, Charles. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Inouye. Make sure to find Above the Well, an anti-racist literacy argument from a boy of color available through the WAC Clearinghouse. It is a truly unique work, one that pushes the boundaries of genre and form. It is an intentional narrative for writing students in your classes right now to learn about the intersection of language, literacy, and race. Don't miss part two of the Big Rhetorical Podcast's season five finale, which is available now. Episode 89 features a wide-ranging discussion with leaders from 
WPA GO, the Writing Program Administrators Graduate Organization, as well as the announcement of our inaugural The Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellow. I won't be back next week because The Big Rhetorical Podcast is on hiatus until the spring semester when we will be back with Season 6 featuring all new episodes from scholars from around the world. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. I grew up in rooms filled with white women. Almost every significant learning experience I can remember from my childhood until deep into college, regardless of what it entailed, where I was, or what I learned, was an experience that involved a white woman, my mom, my aunt, my nana, a teacher, my first girlfriend. I had few significant exchanges directly with men through high school and none with a man of color. White men made me nervous and men of color were a mystery. They were absent. I did not understand men. They were big, loud, brusque, and threatening to me. So it should be no surprise that I associated the act of reading with women in my life. Most of my teachers were women. All of my caregivers and family members who watched over me and taught me how to be me were women. I can recall many Saturday afternoons sitting on the floor in my mom's room in our trailer. I was maybe 12 years old. She would be lying on her bed, still in her nightgown, reading Harlequin romance novels, a box of them at the foot of her bed. She would pick up a dozen of them at the library or go to used bookstores or Goodwill and get a box of them for a few bucks, read them all in a weekend, then return them for cash back and do it again the next week. It was likely my mom's escape from her life. But I knew she loved reading and was good at it. I would watch her read and eventually snuggle up to her, feeling the safety of her warmth. The rest of our life and the world would melt away lying next to her. No more bills that could not be paid. No mean neighbors, no cockroaches. Just my mom reading, warmth, and softness. I liked to watch her read. Her green hazel eyes moved quickly back and forth across the pages, her delicate, graceful fingers turning page after page. My mom's hands have always been beautiful. They are lean, graceful, and delicate. They have just the right amount of muscle over bone. Even her wrinkles in her older age are few and supple. These are the hands that loved me, fed me, took care of me. So even the sound of her turning the page with her delicate fingers soothed me. To this day, I love the sound of a page being separated from the one behind it and turned with a soft crinkle. I thought my mom was superhuman in her ability to read so quickly. She didn't even move her mouth. Today, I still find myself mouthing words I read or write. I compose and read mostly everything out loud, even emails. I cannot help it. Reading just doesn't feel right if I don't feel the words pushed by my tongue, sliding across my lips and out my mouth. I need to feel her words in the air as much as I need to see them in front of me in order to conjure meaning. As a languageling, words have always been a multi-sensual experience for me. They're auditory and tactile. Tactile. Now that's a word that feels like it's meaning when I say it. Tactile. It's an onomatopoeia to me, which in another word, which is another word that feels good in my mouth. Onomatopoeia. Words are vocal, visual, and even vibrational to me. Many words I can feel vibrating places in my head, face, ears, chest, or throat. 
Have you ever felt a word vibrate one of your sinus cavities, those open places hidden under your cheeks or in your forehead? The word Nana does this for me, Nana. It means love and warm hugs and gifts and smiles and false teeth in a glass by her bed. It means being rocked in a green chair to the sounds of amazing grace. It's like a soft, heavy, cool quilt. Like the kind my Nana made. Words have many dimensions for me. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and 700 P3D.